So they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another, not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, You're not going to answer. What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Thanks be to God for his word. Well, it's one of the main tenets of our faith that we can be at one with God through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, God's Son. We're coming towards the end of this series and coming up to Easter. Last week, Philip took us to the Garden of Gethsemane and now Jesus has been arrested and we're at his trial, held before the Sanhedrin who were the ruling religious body in Israel. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 religious leaders in total. The chief priests, the teachers of scripture and the elders. And they were all led by the high priest. The Romans ruled over Israel at this time, but they allowed the Sanhedrin considerable power. Only the final say came from the Roman ruler. Caiaphas was the high priest throughout the ministry and trial of Jesus. He's mentioned as early as Luke 3 verse 2 when John the Baptist began his ministry in the desert. And he's still leading the Sanhedrin when Peter and John are arrested for preaching Jesus and the resurrection of the dead in Acts 4 verse 6. So we're continuing to look at this time of Christ's suffering through the eyes of Mark Mark's gospel is thought to be based on 
Simon Peter's experiences with Jesus, written down by Mark, and it's very straightforward and concise, um, just like Peter appears to be. The first point that struck me about these verses was the absolute enormity of this trial. It's obviously different looking at it after the fact with hindsight. However, it still struck me to the core that the religious rulers, merely human beings, actually put Almighty God on trial. They dared to put Jesus Christ, the Son of God, creator of the universe, Messiah, on trial for blasphemy in their kangaroo court. And why did the religious rulers put the Son of God on trial? Because he was powerful. He generated a large following. And the rulers felt that their hold over the Jews was threatened by Jesus. I did wonder if we put God on trial in any way. Perhaps if believing in him threatens our way of life. But I'll leave that thought with you. So this was a kangaroo court because it breached the laws for holding the Sanhedrin court. Under normal circumstances, it would have been held in daylight. There should have been at least two witnesses whose testimonies agreed and they were not to make decisions or hold court on any feast day. So the whole thing is ironic, to say the least, going against all their own regulations to put the Son of God on trial for breaking their homemade rules. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Verse 56 tells us that many falsely testified, but no one told the same story. And verse 57 directs accusations against Jesus. The witnesses saying that Jesus threatened to destroy the Jewish temple, a sacred site for the Jews, and rebuild another one. Well, this is, of course, a misinterpretation of what Jesus said when asked by the Jews for a sign of his authority. It's recorded in John 2, verse 19, that Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. But the witnesses couldn't even agree about this testimony against Jesus. So the Sanhedrin didn't do very well finding any evidence, did they? But then we wouldn't expect them to find any wrongdoing in Jesus' life. Because he was, and is, and always has been holy, perfect and without sin. Jesus is God. In human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Peter himself uses a quote from Isaiah 53 in his first letter. He says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
If anyone should know, Peter should know. All the disciples spent three years of their life walking with, following Jesus, spending time with him close up and personal. When we live life very closely with others, we usually find something wrong very quickly. And they usually find something wrong with us pretty quickly too. That's because we're all sinners, of course. We all do things wrong. Getting married, living with someone's a very big decision because generally speaking, it's difficult to be perfect all the time. But Peter could still say, after being so close to Jesus, that he committed no sin and deceit was not found in his mouth. So we're looking in this series at how we can possibly be at one with God. Jesus' sinlessness was one reason we're able to be at one with him, to find atonement through him. We're all sinners, we've all done wrong in God's sight, and the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus was sinless throughout his life, he never fell into temptation, even though he was tempted just as we are. He came as God with us, lived his holy life in a body of flesh so he could take our place. It wasn't just in death that Jesus took our place. It was as living a holy life, righteous, so that our imperfect lives could be covered with his righteous life. The rest of Romans 6.23 says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Back to Caiaphas, another interesting fact. I'm a bit fond of interesting facts, I'm sorry about that. It means you suffer with them too. Um, but another interesting fact about him is recorded in John. 11 verses 47 to 50 in that he unwittingly prophesied that Jesus would die one man for many after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and it was reported to the religious rulers the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin what are we accomplishing they said here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation perish. We know now that this is the amazing truth, that one man died in order that all people, the nation of God, could live. So we get to verse 60, and I think we can say that Caiaphas is getting frustrated with all these false statements. So he stands up, and ask Jesus to answer to the charge, but Jesus says nothing. 
Imagine for a minute the defense that Jesus could have brought for himself to confirm who he really was. He could have brought in the disciples to witness to the miraculous works he'd done. The deaf and mute healed, the blind who could see. He could have brought Mary Magdalene in to witness to her changed life. He could have brought Lazarus and Jairus' daughter in as his trump witnesses to declare that they'd been dead and now they were alive because Jesus had raised them from the dead with his power. But Jesus said nothing. And in saying nothing against his accusers, Jesus again fulfills Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah that confirms the truth of who he is. Isaiah 53 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Now Caiaphas asked Jesus directly if he is the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, Caiaphas calls God the Blessed One because the Jews aren't allowed to say the name of God, Yahweh. It's considered too holy a name to pass a person's unclean lips. Jesus answers the high priest with the truth that he cannot deny. I am, he says. There's two points here. I am, Jesus says. And of course, Jesus, the Son of God, is I am. It's one of his names. Just as Father God told Moses to tell the Israelites who he was in Exodus 3. Moses wanted to know what to call God so that the Israelites knew on whose authority Moses was to lead them into Egypt, or lead them from Egypt, rather. God said, tell them I am who I am. I am has sent you. And here we read that Jesus answers, I am. That is who the Sanhedrin were putting on trial. When God tells Moses he is the I am, Moses has taken off his shoes because he's on holy ground. The Sanhedrin should have all removed their shoes effectively because here they stood on holy ground with Jesus, son of man and of the mighty one, the I am, in all ways equal in holiness and power with God. Yet he stood accused. And the second point here is that Jesus turns the tables on his accusers when he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. It will be the day of judgment when the Sanhedrin and we will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God and Jesus coming in the clouds, as Daniel foretold in Daniel 7. Thrones were set in place, it says, and the Ancient of Days took his seat and there was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. The religious leaders were all well taught in the scripture and they had the book of Daniel available to them. They would have known what Jesus was referencing about himself, that he would eventually judge them. Caiaphas could stand no more. He tore his clothes. Caiaphas seems to have torn his clothes in anger, not grief or mourning as was normally the case. It's made all the more strange because high priests were specifically told not to tear their clothes in their law in Leviticus 21 verse 10. Caiaphas continues to flout the rules when he declares they don't need any more witnesses. The case had not been proved against Jesus. The witnesses had all given different accounts, yet Caiaphas was declaring that a decision should be made on the basis of Jesus' so-called blasphemy. What happens? Well, they all condemn Jesus to death. They blindfold him and the mocking and physical abuse begins. Now, Tom will preach on the actual crucifixion next Sunday, so I'm not going to say any more, except to remind us that it's because of the perfect life lived by Jesus that qualified him to die for us, that allows us to be one with God and to have abundant and eternal life now. You might have noticed, you might not, I haven't mentioned verse 54. And I'm just going to com comment on it to finish because I felt something, I needed to say something about it. We read that Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. I felt that sometimes, if there seems like there's a little bit of trouble in our lives or we're suffering or maybe we're a little fearful of what might happen, then we follow Jesus at a distance, especially if we're worried about how our life might have to change if we get too close. We withdraw just far enough away to try and find a worldly security in the warmth of the fire, as it were, with the guards. But with a spiritual security in reach, just in the other room. Maybe we worship online because we're not ready to be seen going into a church. And when we're questioned about our belief in Jesus, we pull away a bit because we're still not sure. I just want to say, if this is you, step right in. Follow Jesus so closely that even the dust from his shoes falls on your feet, as Rob Bell once said. Jesus, Son of God, is the only place where real security is found, not just for this life, but for eternity. It might not feel a secure place in this life to be following Jesus closely, but it surely is. Seek him and you'll find him. Open your heart to him and he'll come in. 
and Peter eventually went in head over heels on the day of Pentecost. And here we are today, worshipping the Messiah just as they did 2,000 odd years ago because Jesus is the same as he was then, the right way, the whole truth and eternal life. Amen. Thanks, Tom.